Huye. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is the producer extraordinaire, Hannah Five Names, and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Super Bowl 57 is now set. Championship weekend for the conferences ended exactly how everyone predicted. In a blowout fashion in one game and a close, very close defensive struggle in the other. Eagles, Chiefs, that's going to be Super Bowl 57 in Glendale, Arizona. Good morning. Welcome to RP3 and Company. I'm your host, Raymond Parts III. I'm joined by the new producer, Dawson Iserlo. We're going to be here for the next three hours. Going to be talking a lot of conference championship weekend. AFC, NFC, going to be diving into what happened on the hardwood. Raging Cajuns got... A great come-from-behind win on Saturday. The men did. The LSU men lose another. The Menise men lose another. The Pelicans lose another. We'll recap all the hardwood action for you. And, of course, we'll take your phone calls. The game hotline's open. 337-706-0111. That's 337-706-0111. We'd love to hear from you. Give us a call on the hotline. We got two guests lined up for you today. 7.30, Jeff Palermo from Tiger Rag Radio will join us to talk all things LSU. And then John Sheeran at 8.30 from Cincy Jungle to talk Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase and company. And let's start there. AFC Championship game. It was a defensive game. This was not a game filled with offensive fireworks. Not really. Had maybe a few plays here and there. But these are two teams that know each other and know each other well. And it showed. Defenses had the upper hand in this ballgame. 23-20 victory for the Chiefs as they went on a last-second field goal shortly before the end of regulation. Set up by... An unnecessary roughness penalty. It's a bad beat for the Bengals. Do I like the call? No. Do I think that should be called? No. Do I grow? Did I grow up in an era where that never got called? Yes. But the rules are what the rules are, and there's some bad officiating in this game. I make no bones about that. Bad officiating in the game. But you can't put your hands on the quarterback when he's a yard out of bounds. You just can't. You just can't. And and you've all seen the video now of one of his Bengal teammates yelling at him while they went back to the locker room after the game. It was caught by someone on camera. Why are you touching the quarterback? (laughs) 
And I'm saying that and I'm paraphrasing in a nice way that doesn't feature curse words. It is a boneheaded play. It was a dumb play. Quarterback's out of bounds. Don't touch him. Very simple. Don't touch him. Quarterback's running out of bounds. If Even if he's in the progress of running out of bounds, don't touch him. Because that 15-yard unnecessary roughness penalty made all the difference in the game and let Kansas City kick the game-winning field goal. It's a boneheaded play. Poorly officiated game, for sure. Boneheaded play. Mahomes sure didn't seem like that high ankle sprain was all that much of a problem. 326 yards, threw the ball 43 times, Kansas City did. Two touchdowns, no picks. He was sacked three times. They did not run the ball at all or barely. Only 42 yards on the ground. Credit Cincinnati's defense. They took the run game away. And the Bengals, who have done a very nice job against Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid's offense, went with the approach of, okay, we're going to take away the run game, which was dominant in the divisional round against Jacksonville. We know Travis Kelsey is going to get his, but they don't have a Tyreek Hill. They don't have somebody else that can take the top off. So we're going to, which is crazy to sound, we're going to take away the run game and have Patrick Mahomes beat us. Well, that didn't pay off. They were gifted that fumble when Mahomes just drops the ball, right? And the Bengals take advantage of it and score off of that turnover late in the ball game. And Burrow had that great throw to Jamar Chase that set up the touchdown. Throws it in double coverage. It was fourth and six. Uh, Jamar will get it. He'll figure it out. And sure enough, that's exactly what he did. But Kansas City had other guys step up. Yeah, Kelsey had a touchdown, 78 yards, seven catches. But Marquez Valdez, scantly, Six catches for 116 yards. Had a touchdown. That was one of those guys that no one was expecting to step up, and he did. Targeted eight times. They used a lot of their running backs. Their two running backs had seven catches in this game. Kadarius Toney did not have himself a good game. Kadarius Toney has not had a good career. Let's just be honest. Hasn't had that good of a career. But this game was there for the taking. Mahomes lost the fumble. That set up a touchdown. He's coming off the high ankle sprain. They have no Tyreek Hill, right? I mean, last year, Cincinnati rallied to beat Kansas City in Arrowhead, and that team had Tyreek Hill, had a healthy Patrick Mahomes. But the Bengals' offensive line was trash. It was absolute trash. I mean, is there another way to describing it? It was trash. It's been a concern. I've had this concern for three years. And credit Cincinnati for trying to 
figure it out this po- this offseason, right? Because they went out, they drafted, and they signed guys. They tr- they're like, hey, we're trying to fix our offensive line, and then they all got hurt. It's what, it's what happened. And they got a bunch of guys out there. They got no business out there blocking for Joe Burrow. Joe threw the ball 41 times, only threw 270 yards. That's it. One touchdown, two picks, sacked five times, hit far more. Just demolished. Joe was their leading rusher. That's never going to be a real recipe for success. He's got athletic ability. He had that great scramble late in the game, right? On that one drive, and you're like, ooh. I think, I, think, I think it was like third and 12 or third and 13 or something. He picked it up with his legs. 14-yard run. Phenomenal. Joe is gutty. Joe is great. Joe can make all the throws. They ran the ball 71 uh, for 71 yards. That's it. They only ran the ball 17 times. So they couldn't establish their run game. Now, it was better than what Kansas City's was. Credit the two defenses that played in the AFC Championship game because they forced turnovers and they shut down the run games. Jamar Chase, 75 yards on six catches, but wasn't able to get into the end zone. Had that great catch that did set up the touchdown. But he caught that in double coverage. But they had no answer for Chris Jones. Like, he wrecked Cincinnati's offensive line. Joe Burrow went to bed last night thinking about Chris Jones trying to sack him. And that was the difference in the game. Cincinnati had opportunities. Mahomes gifted them that fumble around midfield, actually a little past midfield, right? Gave them a short field. They took advantage, took advantage of it and scored. And late in this game, they both punted. And you're like, eh. Like, I, I was questioning Kansas City's decision to punt the ball away when they were already in Bengal territory late. I was like, eh. But they played the percentages. And Burrow... Got roughed up. Made some bad throws. Couldn't lean on his run game. And then had a defensive player decide to hit Patrick Mahomes out of bounds. Really? Because if that game goes to overtime, you feel confident Burrow can go toe-to-toe with Mahomes, right? Even though they both had bad games. Overtime's different. And I kept, I kept texting a group of buddies of mine. I said, it's time for Joe Burrow to be a hero. Here it is. But it didn't happen. And credit Kansas City's defense for, unlike last year's AFC Championship game, where they let Burrow make the throws, they gave Burrow enough time to beat them. Kansas City's defense said, not today. Said, not today. Kept him in check. Really did. For the most part, kept him in check. And the defense made all the difference in the world. 
And you look at Cincinnati's. Their final five possessions. Three and out, minus seven yards, punt. Got the touchdown. That was off the fumble. So they got the ball at midfield, only had to go 46 yards, right? Interception. Punt. End of game. That's what they did. Credit Kansas City's defense. Because their offense wasn't lighting the world on fire because Cincinnati's defense came to play as well. But Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase, and the Bengals' offense didn't do anything with the exception of one touchdown on its final five possessions. Two punts and an interception. And the touchdown came when they got the ball at the 46-yard line after a turnover by its defense. Why? Did Joe have a great game? No. Did they call a bad game? Not necessarily. Kansas City's defense was the difference in this game. Mahomes played well, don't get me wrong, but it was Kansas City's defense that locked Joe Burrow down and said, okay, enough's enough. And they got the win. Kansas City wins 23-20 to advance to the Super Bowl for the third time in five years. They're going to be looking for their second Super Bowl championship in that same span. They're going to take on the Philadelphia Eagles, and we'll talk about the Eagles absolutely destroying the 49ers after the 49ers third-string quarterback goes out of the game. And when that happened, you're like, ah, this game is done. And that's exactly what happened. We'll talk about that game next right here on the game. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Tune in every weekday at 8.15 a.m. and 3.15 p.m. for the LSU Sports Update. Presented by Tibbs Trailers here on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Game hotline 337-706-0111. Game hotline 337-706-0111. The nightcap was a defensive battle with the Chiefs edging the Bengals at the end. Their earlier game, which was the NFC Championship game, was not that. It was an ugly game. 31-7 would suggest that, but the Eagles even looked ugly in this game too. Game really changed, even though I felt Philadelphia was winning the game, and they were. This was a tied ball game in the second quarter, remember? This was a 7-7 game after McCaffrey's touchdown run. This is a 7-7 game in the second quarter. Brock Purdy goes out, and San Francisco just was not itself afterwards. They lost three fumbles in this ball game. Josh Johnson, the one, yes, that Josh Johnson, he actually is still in the league. Many of us didn't even realize he was on a roster. Oh, no, he was the backup quarterback yesterday for the 49ers. 
couldn't handle the ball being snapped into his hands. He had a fumble. Debo Samuel had a fumble. Brock Purdy had a fumble. Purdy gets injured. Then they had to put Purdy back into the game late, even though he was injured because they didn't have a choice because then Johnson got injured. Woof. That was a woof-tastic game at the link. 49ers didn't have Elijah Mitchell. I don't know if that would have mattered. I love him. Covered the kid when he was at Erath High School and with the Cajuns. Maybe it would have helped. But once they had to go to their fourth-string quarterback, it was ball game. And the Eagles win this game 31-7 to with their quarterback throwing the ball for 121 yards and no touchdowns. No touchdowns. The Eagles just won a conference championship game with their quarterback throwing for less than 125 yards and no touchdowns. And you're like, oh, well, RP3, they just must have dominated on the ground. No, they only ran for 148 yards. I'm trying to do the math here. Dawson's educated. He's got a couple degrees. Let's do the math real quick, bud. 121 plus 148 is what? That's 269? Yeah, 269. The Eagles won a conference championship game with a quarterback that didn't throw a touchdown, and they got less than 300 yards of offense. (laughs) It's not a pretty game. Not a pretty game. But the Eagles easily win 31-7 defense was lights out for Philly. They got themselves three sacks. Kept pressuring, kept punting, kept forcing San Francisco to punt the ball over and over again. Four punts by the 49ers. And the Eagles move on, 31-7. to Now, of all the people here at the game, there was really only one of us that got the predictions correct. And that's the new producer. You picked Chiefs-Eagles for Super Bowl 57 in Glendale, Arizona, and sure enough, here we are. So, give me your thoughts of what you saw yesterday in in the two games. Yeah, uh, starting with the Eagles game, because, I mean, that was less of a football game than the last one. Um, It's unfortunate. I mean, I think we were talking, you know, a little bit in the break. Before the injury happens – Philadelphia is not playing great. They have the first drive. They score. But they didn't play particularly well. And I would say after the injury, while the game was still within reach, they didn't play particularly well either. Um, It didn't really matter because it became a situation where San Francisco wasn't going to score unless the defense came up with a huge turnover and gave them great field position. Um, And then obviously once Josh Johnson goes down, it was really a scrimmage at that point Uh, with, with Shanahan... I was surprised he didn't try to get a little bit more creative with guys like Juszczyk or McCaffrey maybe taking snaps because it, it was obvious that Purdy couldn't throw the football. Um, so I, I felt like that was disappointing, but again, there's not much he could have done. So yeah, I mean, I won't take a ton of credit there, but the last game, I mean, it went the way I kind of said it would, right? Cincinnati's pressure was, a you know, protecting against pressure, I should say, was a problem. And Chris Jones was all over Burrow. I mean, he was sacked, what, four times in the first couple of drives, then another... Yeah another couple of times late, um, specifically the last play of the game. And, you know, I said before the play happened, watching the game, I said this is where Burrow always makes the play, but he didn't even really have a chance, right? I mean, Jones comes off the edge, and there's really, 
you know, maybe a second and a half, and, and Burrow had no shot. So, yeah, if you're Cincinnati, I mean, I would think, you know, Kansas City was just a little bit better, and Cincinnati is – they still have to fix some of those issues. I think, look, the offensive line, even though there was a ton of injuries – Let's not pretend like this was ever a great group. So it wasn't. It was never. It was never a great group. Look, when you have Joe Burrow, you don't need your offensive line to be great. He proved that in college, and that's not a knock on the guys at LSU when they won the Joe Moore Award. But that wasn't a great offensive line that year either. Joe Burrow is able to overcome your offensive line problems, and, and, and I get it. And I caught a lot of flack on the air when I said I if I were the Bengals I would have drafted Sewell the offensive lineman instead of Jamar Chase and the reason was it's not that I don't believe Jamar Chase is not special he is we've seen him I saw him at LSU we've seen what he's done in the NFL he's a special player now he gets the benefit of having played his entire college and NFL career with Joe Burrow that's an advantage okay he's special and they got to the Super Bowl last year. So I get it. And it, the gamble paid off. But long term, they got to figure this out because you have Higgins, you have Chase, you have Burrow, you have Mixon, you have these great skill guys. They have, you could argue the Bengals may have the best collection of skill players in the NFL. They're in the mix, right? Top three discussion, Dawson. Their offensive line is, at best, even when they were at their best this year, at best, they're middle of the pack in the NFL. Is that good enough? If you get just one, if you add one more quality guy, what if you added one more quality guy to that? They probably are back in the Super Bowl. They probably would have won the Super Bowl last year. So they tried to address it. It just didn't happen. Like, even when they addressed it, it still didn't get exponentially better. Yeah, and another thing, too, is that nothing really comes easy right now for this offense. There were games, of course, there's matchups throughout the season where maybe things were, but against Kansas City in the playoffs. They Burrow, struggled They struggled against the Saints. Throughout the season, they had, they had stretches. Right, and, and it's like the only plays that were there for them last night were exceptional plays by Burrow and the receiving core. Higgins going up and high-pointing balls, Jamar Chase creating separation. Like, when... They have to be on schedule and just, you know, create normal plays. They're pretty much incapable of it, especially against a front like Kansas City's. Correct. So, I don't that's something that you can only go as far as your front line is going to take you. And uh right now that was kind of the ceiling for them. And and the funny thing is they're still right there and they still could have won this game and then we'd have be having the same conversation about how they're going to handle Philly's front seven next week, but Correct. Yeah, it's something that obviously has to be addressed moving forward. And, um, you know, again, Kansas City, while they're not perfect, they had a few less holes, I would say. Yes, and we thought Cincinnati, Cincinnati would have the advantage in this game. A high ankle sprain really didn't bother Mahomes all that much. He kind of played through it. Brock Purdy, uh, Adam Schefter reported after the game, or last night rather, that the 49ers believe Purdy injured his ulnar collateral ligament. During the championship game, he'll undergo an MRI today to hope that it is not ruptured. And if it's not ruptured, then it would only require a six-week recovery. But if it's ruptured, then that's a whole other story. Whew. Chiefs, Eagles, 
That's your Super Bowl in Glendale, Arizona, Super Bowl 57. That'll be a week from this coming Sunday. This week they have off. It'll be Pro Bowl week, and then after that will be the Super Bowl. We'll talk more about this game coming up right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Want to join in the discussion with RP3? Then just give us a call on the hotline. You know the number. 2-4-9-5-6-7-8. I can't hear you. You're trailing off. And did I catch a niner in there? Were you calling from a walkie-talkie? No need to be embarrassed. Just call us at 337-706-0111. Back to more RP3 and company on, on the, the game. game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Whole question of the day. Does the NFL have an officiating problem? Yes, no, or it doesn't matter. 86% of you say yes. 4% of you say no. 10% of you say it doesn't matter. I'll get to some comments, and then I'll show you my thoughts. JPK, the OD, says, duh, only for about 20 years. But part of it I blame on the ever the uh, the ever more uh, convoluted rules package. Is it a catch? Not a catch. What's a football move? We might as well put the quarterbacks in pink jerseys and flag football equipment. Steve says this poll question can be repeated weekly in the NFL. Duh, with a Captain Obvious screenshot. Bob Rose says the NFL has a commissioner problem. The officials are doing exactly what the top of the league office wants, benefiting certain teams, players, markets every time. That's the real problem, and none of it changes until that does. John Paul says the AAF did it right. The official in the booth could stop the game at any time to correct any call he needed to, and you got to listen to it on the replay booth. Anton says, they have for years. Will anything be done about it? Absolutely not. I don't know if the officials go on power trips, they're blind, or if it's all rigged, but officiating, in my opinion, has gotten worse and worse over the last few years. Thanks to all for those early comments, and a ton of votes already, 50 votes on the poll question. When we discussed this morning's poll question, Dawson and I went back and forth, and then I said, hey, I need you to add an option for one of the answers. And he said, sure. And I said, doesn't matter. And you know why? Because it doesn't matter. I've told you guys this over and over again. And there's outrage every single week for every single season. We've been doing this show now for almost four years. And every NFL season, through the regular season, into the postseason, I hear about the bad officiating. I get told about the bad officiating. You guys complain about the bad officiating. Kevin Foote complains about bad officiating. I get it. You're right. You're absolutely right. And I've explained why this is. NFL does not have full-time officials, believe it or not. So you got guys that could be, I don't know, an accountant that decides on his weekends he wants to be an official. There he is. There's no checks and balances. There's no accountability here. If you had full-time officials and you paid full-time officials, you know what would happen? Then you could hold them accountable. And if you don't do your job properly, then you get punished because you don't have as much work. 
You can get your pay docked. You can be suspended. There's multiple things that can be done. So that's part of the problem right there. You don't have full-time officials. B, humans are going to make errors. They always have, always will. I fail every day. So does Dawson. So do you. Every day you fail at something. The officials do it, and it gets magnified. There should be a process, though, in place to help them out. We have the technology. If I can have watch a game where they can make a essentially a CGI panther or raven go through the stadium, I'm fairly for certain we can have someone be able to step up and, you know, get the call right. I don't think that's a lot to ask. I have two main points on this. Number one, it blows my mind that we don't have a sky official, somebody who can correct obvious errors. Yes. It's I just don't it was, understand. It was brought up after the no call in the NFC Championship game. It doesn't make sense why it's not a thing. The other thing is we are a billion-dollar organization, the NFL is, uh-huh. and we use chains and sticks to mark 10 yards off, and then we break them yesterday, and we have to bring in backup. There it is. We've, there's, there's technology out there. We can figure something else out. And it goes get to my larger point. So human error is part of it. We don't have a sky judge, which doesn't make any sense to me. That would solve a lot of problems. Also, the fact that you don't have full-time officials – is also part of the problem because there's not proper, I believe, not proper training going on with the officials to let them know this is what this is, this is what this is, and this is how you call it. Teams would be far, it would be far easier to accept a bad call in a game if that was the way it was called for all the games. But we don't have that. There's no consistency in the way games are called, right? Bob Rose's point about you know, the commissioner wants favors. I, I I don't buy into all that conspiracy theory stuff. I just don't. I just don't. Joe Burrow is a superstar, and he may be now the face of the league battling with Patrick Mahomes. Having the Bengals back into the Super Bowl with Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase is blockbuster. It just is. Okay, because Joe Burrow is. So, uh, thinking favoring Kansas City, I, I, I'm not buying that. I'm just not going, not going to buy it. Just not. It's incompetency, not corruption. But here's the thing. Sky Judge could fix a lot of things or consistent play, you know, consistent calling by the referees if they were properly trained and full-time officials and everything like that. But you mentioned it. It's a billion-dollar industry. It's a billion-dollar industry with a B. I'm going to share a text that I had with one of my friends. We're on a group text together. And he was like, What's the deal? Why is this? The officiating is so bad. This officiating is so bad. Why is this? Because it just feels like it's only a matter of time before something really egregious happens and it becomes a huge scandal. Talking about the officiating in the NFL. And one of my buddies on the thread said, NFL is Dana White on steroids. Nothing sticks. Which is a good point. But here's my other point. It's a billion-dollar industry that has only grown after Spygate, Deflategate, Bountygate, and anything else. Concussion issue, did that slow down the billion-dollar behemoth? No, it didn't, did it? Bad calls didn't slow it down. The NOLA no-call didn't slow it down. Racist and sexist owners haven't slowed it down. It has only grown more and more powerful. You think a bad call in a conference title game is going to change that? It's not. 
no matter what's happened, the scandals that have rocked the NFL with cheating, with owners being racist or sexist, anything that's happened, anything in a normal work environment would make that that property polarizing, would make it toxic to touch, would have its stocks on the New York Stock Exchange plummet. The NFL keeps rolling right along. You know why? Because no matter how many of you yesterday were upset about the NOLA no-call that happened all those years ago, every single one of you watched. Every single one of you watched. Which means television ratings were up. Which means television revenue from advertising was up. Which means the NFL keeps negotiating more and more richer contracts for itself, its commissioner, and its owners. We're the problem. It's easy to blame Roger Goodell. It's easy to blame the NFL and go, well, oh, they, they don't do this. Yeah, yeah. And you know who enables them? You know who enables Goodell to be the corrupt commissioner, as Foote calls him? You know what enables the NFL to continue getting away with having part-time officials and not having a sky judge and not having proper training for their officials? We do. We do. Because we all are obsessed with football. We're addicted to football. It is the drug of choice for all of us in this country. More so than any other sport. And we turn a blind eye and we say, you know what? That sucks. The officiating's bad. That team got jobbed. That team got robbed. Oh, there are a bunch of cheaters. This, this, and this, and this. And then we simply turn around and we watch anyway. And have done so for 20 plus years. So that's why I made sure Dawson added, it doesn't matter, because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that the NFL, NFL's had an officiating problem for 20 years, guys. For 20 years. 20 years. Doesn't matter. NFL grows bigger and bigger. Just in the since Roger Goodell's taken over, he's made the draft now what was only a special event in New York City, he's turned it into a traveling circus. That the times are changed. It wasn't that long ago that you could watch the draft on two days, and most of it was on, like, ESPN2. Now it's prime time. Ooh, first round. And what happens? Everyone out there listening right now, what does everyone do? We watch. We watch. Does not matter. Owners behaving badly, doesn't matter. Concussions, player sa- health and safety, doesn't matter. Kneeling or not kneeling, doesn't matter. Hasn't mattered. Not one of it has. Not a single thing. Not the bounty gate, the flake gate, whatever other gate you want to add to another word. It doesn't matter. So, bad calls? Yeah, buddy. You're right. But until you stop watching, and in particular, until you stop watching, but also until you stop putting money on games, it's not going to change. Because the gravy train just keeps going right along, keeps rolling right down those tracks. Every year gets bigger and bigger and bigger and makes more money, more money, more money. And you keep giving them your money, your money, your money. Well, if you keep enabling someone, if you have an alcoholic in your family 
and you're upset because they're destroying their lives by drinking too much, but yet you're the one that takes them to the store to get a six-pack, then you're part of the problem. Sorry to tell you, you're part of the problem. We'll talk LSU, UL, basketball up next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. King cake season is here and break rooms are being filled with those delicious sugar-coated pastries. That is so sweet. Just don't be the guy or gal who gets the plastic baby and lies about it. Come on. Come on, really. Step up and do the right thing, cheapskate, and buy the next cake. Back to more of the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Uh, credit to Texas Tech on the win today. Uh, you know, disappointing loss for our team. You know, I thought there were certainly some areas uh, that were much improved uh, for, our, for our program today. Come out the second half, able to get the lead, go up by five with nine to play. I believe we held them to ten points the first 11 minutes of the second half uh, and did a good job of, from an execution standpoint. Um, but then just some of the attention to detail, had some breakdowns. Uh, missed a free throw box out that led to a three-point play, uh, got us into some foul trouble, and then we weren't able to get stops down the stretch, and we weren't able to knock down shots. So uh, credit to Texas Tech on the win. LSU men's basketball coach Matt McMahon after Saturday's 76-68 to loss to Texas Tech in the SEC Big 12 Challenge. That was the eighth straight loss for the Tigers. And it was an entertaining game. I was there in person inside the PMAC to witness it. Uh, it was an exciting game between two bad teams is a good way of describing it. Neither team was really fundamentally sound at playing basketball. That's I'm just being I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm just being real. These are both teams. Texas Tech entered the game having lost eight straight. LSU had lost seven straight. That tells you the caliber of teams that you're battling here. But it was entertaining and went back and forth. But LSU couldn't stop Texas Tech shooting the three ball. Harmon and uh, Obener in particular, especially in the first half, and they were open. Like, it was just a simple dish. Boom. He's out there in the corner. Let him shoot. Hey, open shot. Drain. Open shot. Drain. Open shot. Drain. But LSU fought back. Adam Miller had himself a ball game. He started off strong, finished strong, had 20 points, went 5 of 10 from three-point range. He had a nice game, and really that was able to keep them in the game. The problem was Texas Tech shot 61% from beyond the arc, 61% from three-point ranges. They made 11 of 18 three-point shots. But even with them being hot beyond the arc, LSU actually led in this game late. Went back and forth. They climbed back into the game. And Williams, K.J. Williams, had an old-fashioned three-point play. And then Miller hit a three. And LSU had a chance to add to its lead. But back-to-back trips down the court came up empty. Texas Tech Walton then hit back-to-back three-pointers to retake the lead. 
LSU then retakes the lead as Justice Hill hits a three-pointer, followed by layups by Derek Fountain and Hayes, Cam Hayes. And you're like, okay, this is going to come down to the last shot. But then Texas Tech finished. Responded, and with four minutes left in the game, the Red Raiders held a six-point lead and kept LSU at bay the rest of the way. The Tigers went without a field goal made in more than eight minutes down the stretch of the game. It was like 8-12 of the last nine minutes of the game. They didn't make a field goal. I don't care who you are. That's not a winning formula whatsoever. And for Matt McMahon... It's another disappointing loss. They're trying to find their way. And look, they gave up a ton of three-pointers. And Mad McMahon was asked, was that the plan to leave that many three-point shots open during the game? No, we didn't didn't want to leave them open and, and let them get open looks. I thought Obanor hit two there early uh, to get them started. They end up making seven uh, in the first half. Uh, Walton, the guy coming in. You know, off the bench, had been a role player, went into the starting starting role. Uh, we missed an assignment in the first half on our zone. He knocked down a three, and then he hit the two killers in the corner. Uh, and then the last one, unfortunately, I thought it was a hustle play. We gambled for a steal, led to a scramble, and, and he knocked another one down there. So, uh, no, that wasn't the plan. You know, we did go under Harmon's ball screen, and, and he hit one late in the shot clock, and then he hit one contested late. On, on a shot clock that was a heck of a shot. Yeah, they just lit him up. Harmon was really good. O'Banner is how we pronounce that. Thank you, Dawson. Shout out to him. Kevin O'Banner made a bunch of threes as well. And look, they just – Walton was really good as well. They just gave up to me three balls. And there was moments in the game where you're like, LSU's got control of this. And look – K.J. Williams getting picking up the fourth foul was a huge turning point in this game as well. But empty possessions, and they'd have the momentum, and we're up there in the media area watching the game, and we're watching, and it's like, okay, well, LSU's starting to build something. And every time they would start to get a little momentum, every time they would start to kind of bounce the ball off their foot or lose the dribble and it gets stolen at midcourt, or take an off-balance terrible shot, or don't get the... There was always something. And once again, this was an entertaining game between two very bad teams, but LSU can't shoot the ball very well. And man, they got just buried by Texas Tech's three-point shooting. And just... They got open looks. Sloppy with the basketball and got open looks. Tigers lose their eighth straight, and now they'll have to try to get on track... Wednesday at Missouri. Tip is going to be set for 8 o'clock. You can listen to the action live right here on the game as LSU tries to snap its eight-game losing skid. That's going to do it for hour number one. Hour number two coming up. Oh, man, we're going to talk Raging Cajuns basketball, more about conference championship weekend. Look ahead to the Super Bowl as well. That's all coming up right here on the game. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlo and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Welcome back to RP3 and Company. I'm your host, Raymond Parts III. I'm joined by the producer, Mr. Dawson Iserlo. 
And hour number two has arrived. What a weekend it was. NFL had its conference championships held, and now we're ready to roll. Super Bowl 57 in Glendale, Arizona. Kansas City Chiefs playing in the big game for the third time in five years. They're going to be taking on the Philadelphia Eagles, who are in the Super Bowl for the third time in the last, what, 15 years, I do believe, with three different coaches. Phenomenal job the Eagles did. But what do we make of this game? How good is this game going to be? Going to get another week of rest for Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelsey, and Andy Reid's going to get another week. And there's a ton of intriguing storylines here. Kelsey versus Kelsey. Brother versus brother. That's always going to be fun. Both brothers have won Super Bowls already. Both are two of the best guys to play at their position. They get to face off. So Mama Kelsey's going to have to have the split jersey going on for the Super Bowl there in Glendale. You have that. You also have Andy Reid facing off against his old team. They had a great run of success there with Andy Reid as the head coach. When they went to five NFC championship games. Made it to one Super Bowl. Lost a classic Super Bowl to the New England Patriots. That was the famous T.O. on a broken leg foot game. Where he went out there and just balled out. And they nearly won the game. But could never get over the hump in Philly. That was the knock on Andy Reid. He was a great coach, great offensive mind. But could never get over the hump and win the Super Bowl. And then he finally gets to Kansas City and is able to do just that. So now Reed has to go up against his old team. You got brother versus brother. And the Eagles are the more interesting storyline to me. Because Philly, it just... They beat two teams, did so fairly handedly in the divisional round and the conference championship. But Philly really hasn't shown anything, right? Dawson and I were talking about this during the break. The Eagles haven't been forced to show their cards here. They've been very limited in what they've done because they haven't been forced to show you everything that they can possibly do because both of those games were out of hand by halftime. They didn't need to. Now, is Jalen Hurts going to have to throw for more than 120 yards? And not have any touchdown passes to beat the Chiefs? Sure is. But the Eagles got weapons now. Hurts is dangerous both ways. Remember, he is a finalist for the MVP. You got Devonta Smith. You got A.J. Brown. The Brown pickup was amazing by the Eagles. I mean, I just... I'm still trying to figure out what Tennessee was thinking. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. The Eagles were the benefit... They get Brown from Tennessee, right? That was a trade, if I remember. Correct? So, the Titans gave up on A.J. Brown. He goes to Philly. The Eagles also got a certain New Orleans Saints slot cornerback slash safety, too. Right? And gave up like a bucket of chicken for him. That was it. That's all the Saints got in return. They made smart moves this offseason that have helped their team exponentially. Jalen Hurts already had a rapport with 
Devontae because of their time at Alabama together. But now you got a, a, a legit number one wide receiver in A.J. Brown. That's made all the difference in the world for this offense. And Miles Sanders has really emerged as a really good all-purpose running back. So they got Hurts, they got A.J., Devontae, Miles Sanders. They got weapons, and they got an offensive line that can block. They got some dogs. They pushed around San Francisco's front seven a little bit. But then they got that defense. Once again, the defense has been really good this year. I picked the 49ers. Shows you how much I know. I picked the 49ers because I thought the 49ers defense was a little bit better than Phillies. And it was pretty much a grudge match for a quarter and a half. And then it went away. Phillies defense is salty. They like to get after the quarterback. They got some guys on the back end that can make some plays. But they beat Brock Purdy slash Josh Johnson and Daniel Jones in their two playoff games. You're about to face off against a different level of competition. Right? You're you're facing Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelsey. That's different. It's just, it's just, it's different. And the fact that they haven't been tested while Kansas City has been, I always like the team that's been tested more than I do the one that hasn't. Just that, that just personally. Because I just feel like it keeps you more focused. It kind of always keeps you reset, right? You're, you're always like, okay, I got to be on my toes. So I always like the team that gets tested a little bit more than the team that just rolls through the competition. But Philly has already opened up as a two-and-a-half-point favorite for the Super Bowl against the Chiefs. I'd say you probably that may be right because Philly looks like to be a little bit more of a complete team. But which quarterback do you trust more? Obviously, you trust Mahomes more, right? Which head coach do you trust more? You trust the guy that's been there. So there's some things, and not to mention the Chiefs, have a lineup filled with guys that have been to the Super Bowl, have won a Super Bowl, have lost a Super Bowl. I don't know. I think I understand why Philly's the betting line favorite early on, but Dawson, I fully expect that line to move and move probably pretty quickly in the next three to four days. And the interesting thing is, yeah, we, you just kind of mentioned it. Would you rather be well-rested well, test, well rested or battle-tested? Well, Kansas City's battle-tested. Philly necessarily isn't quite. And the rest aspect isn't really going to come into effect too much because you get the extra week with the Super Bowl. So Kansas City, despite having played you know, a much more physical game that went down to the wire, whereas Philly was able to get some starters out, well, Correct. they get two weeks anyway. So, yeah, I, I was confused as well because – Every time we – do we think these teams are pretty closely matched? I would say so. And, again, when you're dealing with closely matched teams, you look at quarterback and coach is what we said last week, and, yeah, it's not really an argument. It's Mahomes and it's Reed in those two situations. So uh, unless you're giving that much of an edge to the Philly defense, which I guess they are, then you kind of have to, in my opinion, consider Kansas City a bit of a favorite here. And that's what we're going to get. 
Chiefs, Eagles, great two storylines. And both coaches really coached their tails off in this postseason. And Andy Reid gets to go back to yet another Super Bowl. This will be his fourth as a head coach, once in Philly. And this will be his third time as the head coach of the Kansas City Chiefs. And he shared what his emotions are about getting a chance to go back to yet another Super Bowl. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, being out there was unbelievable. Um, there's nothing like winning the championship at home. I mean, that's a that's just a special feeling. Um, uh, you know, and not that the Super Bowl is not. I don't want to say that. That's that's a pretty good feeling too. But um, to to be at home and do it, it's uh, unbelievable. So I'm riding a wave right now, as you guys are, and um, I'll calm down after after I leave here. He'll calm down after he leaves. I like that. And and for Andy, look, the, the Eagles were the team that gave him his first opportunity as a head coach. He had an immense amount of success. I mean, the Eagles were a perennial contender year in, year out under Andy. Getting to multiple NFC Championship games, getting to that one Super Bowl. And he shared his initial thoughts about facing off against his former team with the Lombardi Trophy on the line. I had a great time there, so 14 years, a long time, huh? And um, I'm happy for them. I'm happy for the city. Um, uh, they're passionate. They love football. I, mean, I can't wait till uh, Kansas City and Philly clash. It's going to be it's going to be awesome, man. I mean, what a great what a great Super Bowl will be. It should be a good one. I do believe that. I think these teams are evenly matched, and it's going to be. Man, I just I just think it's going to be a really good game. I just really do. On the other side, Philadelphia, as we mentioned, easily dispatches of the 49ers pulling away there in the second quarter. Even though their offense didn't have to put up a ton of yardage and even put up a ton of points, it got the job done. And the man in charge of the team talked about how his defense affected the play of the quarterbacks for the 49ers. You know, you want to try to make the quarterback feel as uncomfortable as possible um, with everything, what, you know, whether that's the fans and making it loud, whether that's disguising the coverages or whether that's hitting them. And you don't ever want anybody to, you know, to get dinged or, or, or get hurt. And I'm hope he's, I hope he's okay. But it, did, it definitely did change the game. Um, you know, but those guys' jobs to hit the quarterback affect the game, and they, they sure did that today. And they did a nice job. And look, that's going to be key in their matchup with the Chiefs, right? Even though he had a high ankle sprain and he's going to have another week of rest and it didn't really feel like it impacted him all that much, even though he didn't have those magician plays, right? So he couldn't do that. We're talking about Patrick Mahomes against the Bengals. He's going to have another week's rest, but the main thing is to try to disrupt him. And if you're Philly, you just look at what Tampa Bay did. Now, the Chiefs lost their two best, uh, two of their best offensive linemen before that Super Bowl game, and it played a huge role. Once again, didn't have the right amount of O line depth, and it made all the difference in the world because Mahomes was forced to throw while he was, you know, parallel to the ground. Devin White and those boys got after him, and that made a huge difference in that Super Bowl. So, if you're the Eagles, you got to look at that and go, "Hey, we got to keep disrupting things." We got to try to to make Patrick Mahomes' life, you know, whew, 
we got to make it difficult. Make it a challenge, if you will. And you never want to injure a quarterback, but it did give the Eagles a distinct advantage when Brock Purdy went out of the game. And Nick talked about how limited the 49ers offense was once Brock Purdy was left the game with that injury. You know, he had the, he had the thing on his arm, so we, we figured he, he probably couldn't throw it down the field, but we, you don't really truly know. Um, we knew they'd like to do some screens in that scenario because it's a short pass. Um, we knew they were going to run it um, to, to try to keep him out, you know, keep him out of some some danger there. I got a lot of respect for Brock that that he came back in and, and fought uh, a ton of respect for him because I know he, obviously he was hurting, bad, uh, you know, bad. Um, and that's what my guys, all my all my te- former teammates over at Iowa State said about the guy. I know that that kid's a winner. Um, and, he's, and he obviously showed a, a great toughness today to come back in when his team was in a bind. Um, but you don't know quite until they until you see the game plan unfolding a little bit. I think once you get them in third and mediums and stuff like that, and they're not pushing it down the field, I think that kind of gives you an indication. Um, but you know uh, that uh, yeah. So it, it took a little bit of time, but but not 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 too long. Chiefs. Eagles Super Bowl 57 in Glendale, Arizona. That's going to be the matchup, and it should be a good one leading up to it. Can Kansas City win its second Lombardi Trophy in five years? Or can the Eagles win its second Super Bowl title ever? And just a few years after Doug Peterson with Nick Foles as the starting quarterback going from backup to starter had that magical run where they won it. We'll talk more about this game later on in today's show and, of course, leading up to the game, which will be a week from Sunday. And, of course, you can listen to it live right here on the game. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. RP3 is known across Acadiana as a master of the English language. You look at all the guys that they got. Clinton Anukoraru, oof, and I don't know how to pronounce this young man's name. TJ Falola. More like a master of broken English, that is. They also added an inside linebacker, Casey Wasawi. These names are killing me, man. I even practiced <laughs> last night. Me fail English? That's impossible. Now back to that silky smooth delivery of RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Hey, what a great night uh, for our team. It didn't start off very good early, but we were able to regroup at halftime. We knew that we could get back in the game. And, you know, the goal's a point a minute. And I think it's 16. We, we cut into the, We won the first four minutes. That was our goal. And then we won the next four minutes. And at the nine, once it got to, to 10, then the crowd was into it for the whole rest of the game. They were, I've never seen a crowd since I've been here in a long time that I can remember that was as into the game for an entire second half. Uh, and we needed them. You know, the guys fed off of them. And we were able to, to take the lead, I believe, with 939 left and then hang on the rest of the way. But 
a great effort from our guys. Their, their pride was challenged a little bit at halftime, and I would say they responded. I'd say they responded as well. That's Louisiana Raging Cajuns men's basketball coach Bob Marlin. His team was down 49-30 to at the break. They were getting pushed around, manhandled. They were getting spanked inside their own home building, the Cajun Dome, which has been having some pretty good crowds of late. Shout out to the fan base. So what did the Raging Cajuns do in the second half? Roared back to outscore the Eagles 64-38 to to win the game 94-87, to down by 19 at half. And this team ended up winning by seven. What? What? Amazing second half performance. Absolutely. And the Cajuns come out of the locker room firing. Kentrail Garnett hit two three-pointers to give the Cajuns some momentum as they outscored Georgia Southern 10-4 over the first four minutes of the second half. They continued to close the gap, outscoring the Eagles 13-7 over the next four minutes to cut it down to seven at the 11-32 mark of the second half. Greg Williams had 17 at the media break for the Cajuns. And they just kept going and going and going. They outscored the Eagles again, 13-4, to take a 66-64 lead with 8.03 remaining in the game. Dawson, you were in the building for the game with Matthew Miguez. Just give me your perspective there from the media seats inside the Cajun Dome when the second half started up and running and the Cajuns started coming to life? Uh, I have not seen a game in the Cajun Dome, which I was at UL from 17 to 21, so it'll give you an idea of the amount of games I've attended. Have not felt an energy like that in the Cajun Dome ever, really. Um, That was, and I've been very hesitant to compare this team to the team from my freshman year, which is the 2018 team, I guess you want to call it, depending on which season you're referring to. That's the team that set the regular season mark for wins. Of course, 27-7 and and those guys. Um, But this was the first time that I really started to feel some of those feelings um, about a team because they've, they've won seven in a row coming into this game, but they didn't blow anyone out. And that's the difference, I guess, which, you know, this team doesn't just have to be compared to that team, but that team ran teams out of the gym in conference play, but I think the conference is a lot better now. So you've had competitive games, and this was a game where, and you know, look, I was texting you know, back and forth with people at half, and it was just like I've never seen a team shoot the way Georgia Southern did in the first half, and they're not a great shooting team. You know, Bob Marlin talked about that a little bit in the press conference. Like Statistically, they're not one of the best, and there was a lot of contested shots, and they were just making everything, and so it felt like one of those nights where when you play 18 conference games, you just, well, it's just not our night, and they're going to get this, you know, this is going to be a loss, but they had other ideas, and so, you know, I thought it was tremendous. I thought Joe Charles, which I tweeted about it, I mean, his defensive effort in the second half, he's a guy who comes off the bench and it's just tremendous. I thought Themis Folks was also really good, just making the point guard for Georgia Southern, making his life difficult in the second half. Uh, he's a better defensive player than he is an offensive player, Folks is, in my opinion. Themis can get you 10, 11, 12 points a night. The shot doesn't always look pretty, right? Sometimes he does that, what I call the, the you know, kind of, he <laughs> it looks like he's just bare you know he's just with the, just pushing it you know uh, but you're right defensively he is an asset and they got guys on this team that are committed to playing defense and they enjoy playing defense and that makes all the difference in the world it just does and a team that was down 19 I think this speaks to kind of where Bob Marlin has this group at this point a team that was down 19 came out in the second half and didn't look like they had any idea of losing that game any intentions of losing it I mean they came out 
And again, they got three foul calls, I think, in like the first 30 seconds of the second half, which really kind of got the crowd going, which is what we, we kind of talked about with Miguez afterwards. The crowd got involved, and all of a sudden, like you said, one of the better crowds in the first place, just numbers-wise. But really, and I, you know, Bob mentioned it, like the intensity of that crowd throughout that run was really incredible, and just something we're not used to seeing with this team. And down the stretch, I mean, look, it's setting up nicely. Of course, Texas State on Thursday at home again, and then you have the Cajun Chicken returning with possibly what I would consider the second best team in the conference coming in with first place on the line. It feels like it feels like the regular season championship is going to be on the line Saturday. Certainly could be, and Southern Miss might have something to say about that. You still have a road okay. trip there, but yeah, I, from what I've seen, Marshall outside of a you know maybe a letdown performance against ULM is you know the second best team behind UL and. It should be another great atmosphere, but it feels like the Cajun Dome is coming back a little bit, which is something I, you know, I didn't necessarily know how that was going to go, even with the team winning. And they win because of a great second half and got to speak to the media. Uh, the, the players got to speak to the media uh, afterwards. And Jordan Brown and Greg Williams talked about what the difference in the second half was. I think we just really came out with more energy. Uh, we started off kind of sluggish, and uh, we had a talk in the locker room about picking up our energy and uh, just having pride with it, you know. Home games, you know, they're really important for us, so we came back in the second half and just really competed, and then we fought back, fought our way back. Yeah, I'll say the same thing. It was just a big energy uh, big energy thing. You know, we, we came out kind of slow. We knew that they were going to come out and, and punch first, so we just had to, you know, take the punch and keep going. So. We came out of halftime. You know, we knew that we were we weren't playing capable of you know what we usually do. So we just had to come together and find a way. And that's exactly what they did. They came back out. They came together and rallied from 19 down to win this ball game. And you know, this is a good team. This is a talented team. Expectations are to win the regular season championship and be the one seed for the conference tournament. Folks around here in Acadiana expect this team to make it to the NCAA tournament. That should be the expectation, especially with the talent and the veteran experience they have. But a game like this, when you get smacked in the mouth, you're down by 19 at halftime, and you dominate the second half to come back and win, what does that do for the team's confidence? And this is what Bob Marlin had to say about that. I think it's huge. Um, I told the staff afterwards, uh, we've lost to these guys four times in a row in this building. Okay. And last year we had about an eight-point lead with about two and a half to go, three to go, and, and let that one go and lost by one, if you remember. So uh, it's huge that we kept the lead. If we would have given this one back after that comeback, that, that could have been damaging. But this team's the experience, they've done a great job focusing. I thought we had a great week of practice too. Great shooting practice today. And we just came out, we're a little bit flat and we got punched in the mouth. But instead of us punching and getting a TKO in the first half, like we've been doing defensively, today we got knocked to the canvas and we got back up and won the, won the decision. It's the type of game you need. It's the type of game that you need to be able to put together a great run being tested and coming out the other side with a W is the best thing that can happen for a team. It just is. Because it gives you that sense of danger. Oh, no. We let one you know, slip through. And remember, this team opened up conference play with back-to-back -back losses. That Coastal Carolina team is no good. 
let, let's just be fair. Look at the standings. They're four and six in conference playing 10 and 12 overall. They're not a good ball club. So that served as the alarm, so to speak, for the Cajuns to be like, hey, you're not going to walk through this conference slate. It's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. So they have to be on high alert, knowing they're going to get everyone's best effort, and they got Georgia Southern's best effort. They took it, and they rallied. This is going to give them a level of confidence that they're going to need if they want to punch their ticket to the NCAA men's tournament. we got to punch our ticket for a timeout. But when we return, we'll talk LSU. Men's basketball team continues to struggle. Women going to be at home for a big game tonight against Tennessee. Oh, and the baseball team held media day last week as well. Jeff Palermo from Tiger Rag Radio will join us to talk all about that. That's next. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. RP3 grew up dreaming of one day playing right field for the Atlanta Braves. Just like his hero, Dale Murphy. I wanted to grow up and be Dale Murphy. Little Raymond, though wasn't quite the caliber of athlete of his childhood hero as his lone highlights as a ball player were being beamed twice in the head. That actually explains a lot. Back to more RP3 and company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Does the NFL have an officiating problem? Yes, no, or doesn't matter? 85% of you say yes to our poll question of the day. 4% of you say no, and 11% of you say it doesn't matter. To get to some comments, Darren on Twitter says, they are human, we're not perfect at our jobs. They're just under a microscope because they're on national TV each week. But imagine us doing our jobs on TV every week. How many people would nitpick everything we do wrong? I don't think the refs could control the 49ers quarterback situation. It's very true. Ralph on Twitter says, Foot's been trying to tell us this for years. Finally, the rest of the world is realizing he is the Cajun Nostradamus applied to Foot Locker, hired by NFL. (laughs) Martin says, been having a rough problem, but at this point, what can we do about it? Don't like it, then it's quite simple. Don't watch it because nothing will ever get done about it. And And that's my point. It doesn't get done because we don't force it. We are the enabler. In this relationship, the NFL gets away with terrible officiating. It does not properly train its refs. They are not full-time employees. They're not, there's no checks and balances in place to make sure that the integrity of the game is upheld with its officiating. And the NFL isn't forced to do anything about it because we don't force them to do anything about it. They've had numerous scandals Spygate, Bountygate, Deflategate, concussions, player safety issues. Having players being stabbed with a needle like Tyrod Taylor was. Not only concussions, but other player safety issues of allowing players and not putting the safety of the player above anything else. Cheating, scandals, owners that are sexist and racist and having terrible things being done behind the scenes. And bad officiating. And what has changed? 
nothing. The only thing that's changed is that the NFL has grown more and more valuable, more and more profitable. Television contracts reach new heights every single year. And you keep watching and you keep betting. So complaining about officiating, that's great. We're enabling the NFL and the commissioner, who foot calls the corrupt one, to keep orchestrating things and keep doing things in this manner because we're not holding them accountable. Sorry, time to look, take a hard look in the mirror about that. Let's head out to the hotline. Welcome on Jeff Palermo to the show. He's the man who's co-host of Tiger Rag Radio, also the news and sports director of the Louisiana Radio Network. He joins us now. Jeff, good morning to you, bud. How are you? I'm doing well, Raymond. How about yourself? I'm doing great, bud. So I got to come over to see the LSU men's basketball team in person over the weekend. I know what you're saying. Raymond, what are you doing with your free time? Yeah, I want to even go down the street to go watch them play. It was a wildly entertaining <laughs> game, Jeff, between two very bad teams. Okay, so let's start there. Uh, it uh, was, yeah, I mean, it, it was, was a little nip and tuck there for a while in the second half, but so, same old, same old, right? They, yes. It's LSU the same, can't score. Right. Well, not only can they not score, they went more than eight minutes without scoring in the final nine minutes of the contest, which was a winnable game. They can't score, and then they absolutely did not even bother to try to defend the three-point shot. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know. I, I mean, it's kind of a broken record at this point. Um, they, they don't – they got a bunch of guys that are kind of one-trick ponies, and they're fairly well scouted out by now. The book is out on them. I mean, they really need someone in order to win – they really need someone to to have a big offensive game, and they Adam Miller gave them twenty points on Saturday, so you're you're hoping maybe that might be enough. But it, you know they again they they shoot thirty seven percent from the field as a team. Um, they at least they scored over sixty points in this game, but you just it's hard to win uh, when you shoot thirty seven percent, and then the other team shoot 61% from three-point land. So um, that, that's kind of the story of the game. I mean, I don't know. Uh, K.J. Williams getting into foul trouble, uh, that, that really hurt him as well. When, when he picked up his fourth foul, uh, that really changed the dynamics of the game, and that's when they went through their offensive slump. Well, yeah, that was part of it if for sure. But the other thing that I noticed, and look, I've noticed this by watching from afar, but seeing it in person, right there inside the PMAC where the media sits, you get a great angle of, of the court. Every time LSU had seized a little momentum, Jeff, there was something dumb that happened, like bouncing the ball out of bounds or losing the ball at midcourt because you didn't have your right handle with it, and that leads to an easy, fast-break bucket for Texas Tech, or not – deciding to play defense on the perimeter and leaving Texas Tech wide open for three-point shots, it was always a little something, right? It, they, they don't shoot the ball well, and that puts them in bad situations, but they're also they, – they don't execute really anything very well where even when they have momentum and it's gifted to them, 
they just turn the ball right back over and they lose all the momentum. And all of a sudden, what is a four-point advantage, all of a sudden they're down by six. And it happens just like that. Yeah. You know, they only had 10 turnovers um, Saturday. So that was a, you know, and, and they've had the, the turnover issue has been a problem here lately. So that, it didn't come back to hurt them as much um, in this game than, than in previous games. And, uh, you know, I, I think at this time, when, when you've lost uh, eight in a row, I, I just think you, you start figuring out ways to lose games at this point, right? I mean, I, I think you're – your confidence has been hit. Uh, you, you're you're not expecting to win. Uh, you you kind of let these bad things happen to you. You have a hard time overcoming them when they do happen. So I think there's a lot that goes into it. Um, they're, they're just not a good team, and they don't have a lot of talent to keep competing against these Power 5 schools. And, again, I, I really feel like other teams uh, – have kind of figured them out, and uh, you know you get you get KJ Williams in foul trouble. You score only he only scores 14 points because of it. And so yeah, there's just that's not a good team. I mean <laughs> that's that's kind of it. And and I don't think you can really. I, I think if you want to sit here and try to analyze the job that Matt McMahon is doing, I, I don't I don't even know if you really can do that because. Um, th- this is a roster that he had to just kind of cobble together. He's trying to make the most out of it, but he really just doesn't have the talent to to make anything happen. So uh, this is the result. And and now, and, and even Coach McMahon alluded to this, uh, I think a couple games back, when you when you start when these losses really start piling up on you, then it's it also becomes a mental thing. Uh, and it's hard to kind of keep the group together, keep them moving forward. And then during the, the course of a game when something bad happens, uh, can, can you overcome it or you're like, okay, here we go again. This is where this is where it starts falling apart for us. And that's certainly what kind of happened in those final nine minutes on Saturday. I, I would agree. You, you could tell they started playing a little tight and got, and, and got disjointed there. They'll be back in action at Missouri on Wednesday. Let's switch gears to the women's basketball team because they have a big game tonight inside the PMAC against Tennessee. Now, this isn't, you know, your mom's volunteers team, right? Uh, you know, this isn't Pat Summit-led volunteers team, but it's still a quality opponent. Um, what do you make of tonight's matchup, and how much of a challenge do you think the Lady Vols are going to be for Kim Mulkey's squad? I think LSU should be able to handle this one. I wouldn't be surprised if they win by double digits. I mean, I just think LSU is that good, you know, through 20 games this season. I mean, they've they've uh, they've just really handled most of the teams that they've played this season. And you're right. I don't think this Tennessee team is that is that great. You know, they're coming off a 17-point loss at home to UConn, who's obviously one of the better teams in the country. You might sit there and say, hey, but uh, Tennessee's 8-0 in the SEC. But this is not a very good uh, – I would say this is not your uh, <laughs> your mother's Southeastern Conference in women's basketball. I mean, I think there's two really dominant teams, LSU and South Carolina. Tennessee's good. They're not great. And then the rest of this – rest of the teams are, you know, average to below average. I mean, there's not, I mean, in years past when the SEC is really strong, the seventh or eighth 
best team in the SEC is is ranked, and that's 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 not even the case this season. This is a very uh, down year for the Southeastern Conference, besides LSU and South Carolina. So, uh, to me, I think LSU can. Uh, I think LSU can handle them well. You're going to have a sellout crowd in this one. Um, you know, the, so I, I think LSU should be able to to, to win this one uh, pretty good. I, I guess the, the concern is if someone like Jordan Horston for Tennessee, who, who's a bigger player at six foot two, creates a bit uh, a problem for LSU smaller guards. But what we saw uh, in the Alabama game last Monday is that. Kim Mulkey is not afraid to put someone like Angel Reese on a perimeter player. So who knows? Maybe that might happen again here tonight. Jeff, appreciate your time. As always, brother, enjoy the game tonight, and we'll talk to you next week, bud. All right, sounds good, Raymond. Thanks. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Here on RP3 and Company, we talk about the sports you know and love. Baseball, football, basketball, and soccer. Isn't this great, man? I love soccer. Here we go, Galaxy. Here we go. Okay, maybe not soccer, but we'll try to do our best. Back to more knowledgeable sports talk with RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. The Louisiana Raging Cajuns men got the win over the weekend, rallied from 19 points down in the second half to win the ball game as they continue to remain tied atop the standings in the Sun Belt Conference. LSU, we documented, had a poor game, unable to get a field goal and more than eight minutes of action in the final nine minutes of Saturday's loss to Texas Tech in the SEC Big 12 Challenge. Well, the Meanese Cowboys had a game right there. It looked like they were going to snap they're losing skid, but unfortunately, Texas A&M Corpus Christi outscored McNeese 11-4 in the final 440 of Saturday's game as they were able to pull out an 83-72 win over the Cowboys in Southland Conference action in Corpus Christi on Saturday. McNeese trailed 72-68 following a Jonathan Massey layup with 5-11 to play, but the Islanders answered with a Jalen Jackson three-pointer. A couple of free throws by Teron Murdex and another three to build the lead up to 12 points with three minutes remaining. The Cowboys missed on their next four shots since pulling to within four points, all of them from long range, and was held scoreless for nearly four minutes until a Christian shoemate dunk with 117 remaining snapped a 10-0 Islander run. McNeese now drops to 5-17 overall, 2-7 in league play. That's seven straight losses for John Aiken's team. Texas A&M Corpus Christi, meanwhile, improved to 13-9 and and 6-3 and in the SLC and defeated the Cowboys for the 14th consecutive time. Woo! Shoemate led McNeese in scoring with 15 points and six rebounds. Zach Scott added 13 points, while Massey and Harwin Francois each scored 11 as well. McNeese returns to action on Thursday when they host Lamar at 7.30 in the Legacy Center. 
Lamar dropped an 80-65 to game at Northwestern State on Saturday. So kind of a must-win situation for McNeese on Thursday. We said the same thing this past week when they lost the Incarnate Word, but look, right now they're at the bottom of the standings. You only take the top eight teams for the conference tournament, which they're hosting at the Legacy Center. Lamar's right there with them. So you're going to have to beat the poor teams, the bad teams. You're just going to have to figure out a way to do that. And right now, they're struggling to do so. Yesterday, the New Orleans Pelicans, without Zion, still fell to the Milwaukee Bucks, 135-110. to They had production across the board. Jose Alvarado, 18.6 assists. Trey Lance and Valachunas had 16 points each. Kyra Lewis. Got some minutes. He scored 15 points, six rebounds, three assists. They shot 44.6 from the field, but only made 13 of 34 three-point attempts. They were jacking them up, and they just weren't falling. Milwaukee, 55-2% from the field. And, oh, yeah, they have Giannis. By the way, 50 points (laughs) for the big fella. 50 points, 13 rebounds, and he was... A wildly efficient 20 of 26 from the field. Pels lose yet again. Still trying to find their way as they're dealing with injuries and trying to get everyone back. And they got their guys back. But then, you know, you face the Greek freak. More than likely, you're going to be on the losing end of that battle. Because he may be the best player in the league. I know he's not the back-to-back MVP. That gentleman resides in Denver. But if I'm building a franchise, I'm probably taking him and building around him. Guy's in his prime, and he's an unstoppable force. That's going to do it for hour number two. Hour number three, man's right around the bend. We're going to recap AFC, NFC Championship games, look ahead to Super Bowl 57. And that's all coming up next right here on The Game. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Final hour of RP3 and Company has arrived. Coming up a half hour from right now, John Sheeran is scheduled to join us, our friend from Cincy Jungle, to put a bow on the Bengals season. Oh, so close to getting back to the Super Bowl for the second straight year. But the team's issues with having a competent offensive line coming back to bite them yet again. And and where do they go? Because they, they, they give Cincinnati credit. They didn't address it two years ago, but this last offseason after losing the Super Bowl, they went out and said, you know what? We're committed to fixing the offensive line. They were. It didn't work. It, it didn't work. Some of those guys were banged up. Some of the other starters were banged up. You know, they, they had to play three backups against the Bills and did so against, against Kansas City. So they tried to fix it, but... As Dawson brought up earlier, if you watch Cincinnati play throughout the season, 
the offense at times looked clunky. There were games where you're like, why aren't they running the ball with Joe Mixon? You're just like, what? They were a little off with their offense. Now, it always got taken care of because Joe could just throw it up to double coverage to Jamar and be done with it, right? Or throw to Higgins. I mean, they got great weapons, especially on the outside. So even when their offense sputtered, which it did for good portions of the season, Joe was able to make enough plays to kind of hide it, if that makes any sense. But you saw it against Kansas City. The Chiefs do not have a great defense. They have some great players. They don't have a great defense. They had no answer for Jones. He just, man, never had a playoff sack before. He had two by himself yesterday. I don't know who 77 is, but he couldn't block to save his life. Done. You look like Andre Speed out there. Trying to pass block. He just... So if you're Cincinnati, you have a generational talent at quarterback with Joe Burrow. You have one of the top three best wide receivers in the game in Jamar Chase. You have two other really good wide receivers. You have a good running back. You have some nice pieces on defense. You have, you have, you have a team. You have a legit contender. But yet we enter another offseason for the Bengals where offensive line is an issue and is going to be a priority. I don't know how they fix it. I really don't. And to jump in here, not to be doom and gloom, because I know we have a lot of temporary Cincinnati Bengals fans listening to the show, but you have that's to... That's a nice way of describing <laughs> that. You have something that's going to take place here where Burrow is still on his rookie contract, but we're seeing this more and more in the league. Teams talk about how much more difficult it is to win when you're paying a quarterback. See Dallas with Dak and things like that. Seattle with Russell Wilson after they paid him. That made a huge difference in what they were able to do. And Kansas City's the exception to that, but that's also because Mahomes is different. But Burrow's got one year left on the rookie deal, I believe, and then you know maybe the fifth-year option. So you better fix it fast, like this offseason. And then Jamar will be the year after. Right. And so and we've seen the market for wide receivers just this last offseason, which is enormous. It's the, it's the highest it's ever been. You don't think Jamar's not going to get – like you're going to have to dole out a lot of money. So you're, to your point – you got to figure this offensive line issue out now because you're going to have to, in the next two to three years, you're going to have to be paying out a ton of money to DeBurrow and Chase. You got to figure it out now. Now, do you do that with drafting really smart and locking in guys on those four to five year deals? Offensive linemen get paid less anyway, right? That's going to be affordable for the team and just build up your depth that way and draft guys in the first and the second round across the offensive line and just say, you know what? That's what we're missing. We got everything else figured out. We got the quarterback. We got wide receiver. We got running back. We got defensive players. We got a kicker. We don't have it figured out on the offensive line. So you know what our goal is going to be in 2023 and 2024 drafts? Offensive line. And that's, we talked about the difference. And I you can't fault them for taking Chase because of what Chase did end up being in the NFL. But the argument there was, receivers can be found further along. We've seen the Saints pick up Olave later on in that first round. The Bengals had a high first-round pick that year because they had been bad. Justin Jefferson was drafted at 18. Right, and so now you're in a situation where you're going to be picking at 30, 31, whatever it is. So it becomes more difficult. But, yeah, I think you have to find that guy in the draft because 
you're just not going to be able to. No, they had a ton of free agency, you know, cap space last year that worked out that way because yes. you had all those guys on rookie contracts. I don't know how many more chances you have to do that. So you kind of have to hit in the draft, and you got to you got to do something because obviously, I don't think you can go run it back into next year. And you know, look, Burrow stayed healthy for the most part this year, but. That's a legitimate concern. You know, you can't have him continuing to take the amount of hits he's taken. We saw that with Andrew Luck early in his Colts career, and he kind of, you know, that kind of contributed to maybe him retiring early, right? All those shots he took when the offensive line was so bad. So that's something that's got to get fixed. That's my biggest concern about Burrow. And that's been my argument all along. Look, Burrow and Chase are special together. They just are. It's a special connection. And I get why. I've gotten gruff for it. I've gotten grief for it in particular by two men out there that typically listen to the show that their first names start with B. And they do Karen Crow High School football for us on Z1059. Because they love the Chase and Joe connection. And rightfully so. Look, that catch Jamar made last night in double coverage, only he can make that, right? Only he and Burrow can make that happen. So I get it. I do. But long term, you're like, that's the gamble that you make. You hope you catch fire in a bottle, which they did last year, and they started doing again this year, where you're like, okay, they got Jamar. That's enough to get them over the hump with a mediocre offensive line. But that window is small for that to happen because I worry about Burrow as tough as he is because you know what? Andrew Luck was tough as nails too. That was his reputation. He'd hit. He wasn't afraid to get hit by linebackers. Nothing, right? Tough as nails, leader of men, great arm, precision passer, great player. But the Colts failed at protecting their number one asset. And I credit Cincinnati because they tried to address it this last offseason. They tried. It wasn't because they didn't try, right? It just didn't work out. They got to figure out how to fix that because you're right. Because not only do you have the contracts coming up for Joe and Jamar, which will be back-to-back years. Now, if they're smart, they try to get those extensions done before, right? Because that it'll be a little bit cheaper for you. But if I'm Jamar, why would I? Because you see what the rod receiver market's going to be. You'll be like, I want to be the highest paid guy because that's what we do now. And Joe's going to want to be the highest paid quarterback. And rightfully so. So you got to figure that out. But then, how long can Joe take the beating that he takes? That's my biggest concern. Is he going to get punch drunk like Andrew Luck? That's your biggest concern. You have this great window. And look, just because Cincinnati lost yesterday does not mean I would expect them to be in the mix. Someone tweeted something out, oh, we get Mahomes Burrow. This is classic, man. We're going to get this a lot. That's what it feels like, right? It feels like we're going to get Bengals, Chiefs, and Bills in the mix every single year out of the AFC. And maybe Jacksonville, if they continue to progress, there's a big question mark there for me. I need to see more than just one year from Trevor Lawrence and Doug Peterson there in Jacksonville. But you know you got Bills, Bengals, Chiefs. You got Justin Herbert, if they can figure it out with the Chargers. Does Lamar stay in the AFC with Baltimore? I mean, we're going to have some great matchups here. This is almost feels like a golden era for quarterback play, in particular in the AFC. So it's there. It's there. That said, 
they got to do a better job of figuring out how to protect Joe. Because if you don't have Burrow, uh, look, Blaine Gabbard ain't throwing that type of ball to Jamar Chase and making it, guys. Just not. Just ain't happening. Got to figure it out. They got to figure it out. And we'll talk to John Sheeran of Cincy Jungle to find out what the Bengals can do. Because once again, they only lost the game by three points and nearly went back to the Super Bowl, even with a mediocre offensive line. So if you're in that front office, you're like, well, we made it to the Super Bowl with a mediocre offensive line. We almost made it back to the Super Bowl again with a mediocre offensive line. But you got to do something because you have this great window with Burrow and Chase and Higgins and those wide receivers. You got Joe Mixon, who's still kind of in his prime, right? That's the thing. Want to see what happens with the Jags moving forward. I believe in Doug Peterson. I know a lot of you guys don't. I'm already getting question here. Jacksonville. Jacksonville, get out of here. Texans will start winning again eventually. Of course, that's our good guy, Texan in Acadiana. (laughs) I'm just, you know, I get it. But Jacksonville does look like they're building something there. AFC is going to be a dogfight every single year. Just is. Just absolutely is. Let's head out to the hotline. Welcome on our friend, Doug. Doug, good morning to you, brother. What's on your mind, my friend? Hey, morning, Ray. Uh, it, it, it was obvious yesterday, Ray. I mean, Mahomes had all day to sit back in the pocket, throw the ball. He could have sent out a text and made a sandwich and everything, you know? I mean, he wasn't molested and rushed at all, but pressured at all. But, I mean, Joe, man, he was running for his life. Yep. As soon as he, his back foot was, was planted to throw that pass, there was a, a lineman hanging all over him. Good Lord, man. And they still almost pulled it out, except for that, that penalty there at the end. Uh, and, and I wonder, man, if that had been a running back running out of bounds and, and got pushed if they'd have thrown a flag, you know? Doug, so probably not. Look, throw flag. Well, it, 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 it's, it's not because Mahomes is Mahomes. It's because it's a quarterback. Right, that was Tom well, Brady that, running yeah. out of bounds. I mean, right, that, yeah, yeah. Oh, right? yeah. And, and, and that's what it is. About a fi- and, and about officiating, man. Is your question about uh, the games yesterday, or was it like for the season? You know, I just think uh, because- uh, 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 look, there was bad officiating yesterday, in particular in the AFC Championship game. But there's been bad officiating every single week for every season as far back as I can remember. Like, I mean, it's, yeah. we're, we're going on 20 years of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, but, but, Ray, I don't think it was as bad as, say, three or four years ago, you know, when the Saints were in the hunt just about every year. But but then again, I mean, every game, that you always see bad calls. I mean, it's, it's almost the norm these days, you know. Unless it's against your team, you really don't care, you know. But uh, Mama's not even going to watch the Super Bowl, Ray. She's not going to watch it. She's so upset because since because uh, Joe Burrow's not in it, <laughs> she says she's not watching the Super Bowl, and I'm almost inclined to do the same. I tell you. How do you feel? Let me ask you this, Doug. Uh, how do you feel about Chauncey Gardner Johnson going to be playing in the Super Bowl? Former New Orleans Saints <laughs> starter. Isn't that isn't that sweet? Oh I mean, my God! God. And, and they got nothing right? for him. I, I'm, they I'm got nothing for him. Ray, I'm leaning towards Philly in this. For some reason, I'm leaning towards Philly. You give him hurts a little rest. Mahomes is going to get some rest, too. But I I just feel like Philly, just there's something about them this year, especially their defense. 
That defense is good. Should be a good game, brother. I appreciate the phone call. I got to go, but thank you for your time. Hope you have a tremendous day. Hotline is open. Game hotline, 337-706-0111. That's 337-706-0111. You're listening to RP3 and Company right here on the game. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. There are some hosts that talk like they know everything, but you don't have to worry about our guy, RP3. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. That's because he never knows what he's talking about. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Back to the show in the know. RP3 and company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. think it was very foundational of like what to expect um being a very fundamentally sound team and then like okay what does that mean and then the discipline it takes to actually do that um i feel better about that uh the competitive level valuing winning um you know having this idea that teams can prepare for what we do how we pitch how we hit but they can't prepare for the competitive nature of the group and i think at times you saw a lot of that I think not just the roster will elevate that, but the opportunity for those players to really understand what that means. You know, competing on the road in the SEC with, you know, some of the top programs in the country, you know, being in the NCAA tournament, you know, in a one-run game that's going to advance you to a super regional or not, um, they have a little better idea of, I think, what that means. And then, you know, a character piece where it's just about the player's ability to make good decisions on and off the field. Now what we have is you have a group of returning players that were chosen to return here, that have full understanding of what that looks like, that can model that, that younger players can emulate. Then you have players that were freshmen last year that this is all that they know, you know, how we run September, how we run fall practice, what the expectations are in December, leading into the season, and then competing. And that's the same thing now with the freshman group or new players that have been brought in. So you find yourself working instead of, like, explaining a lot. And I think that will really benefit the productivity of what we're able to get done. LSU's second year baseball skipper Jay Johnson talking to the media during Friday's Baseball Media Day event, which is one of the bigger events to attend as a member of the media here in the state or in the region for that matter. Expectations are through the roof for the LSU Tigers. Omaha are bust. They're the preseason number one team in every publication, every website. LSU, 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 number one, number one, number one. Year number two of Jay Johnson. Year one was okay, right? Got to a regional, lost the Southern Miss region, but you still got to one. But that's not good enough at LSU. Tiger fans expect trips to Omaha, Nebraska. Tiger fans expect their team to be in the mix every single year for a national championship. That's what happens when you're raised with Skip Burtman giving you five of those in a decade. Anything short of that is a disappointment. That's why so many people were always disappointed with Paul Maneri. 
great coach, great man. Heck of a man. Only got the one chip, right? So expectations are through the roof. And part of that is because they have a nice mix of freshmen, of returning starters, including Dylan Cruz, the projected number one overall pick, as well as junior college players that are going to help come in and fill in some holes. And Jay Johnson talked about that role and what those JUCO guys are going to be able to bring to the team this season. I think uh, it doesn't matter whether it's freshman, junior college transfer, now transfer portal. Every decision in recruiting is made on what's best for LSU baseball. But I think you bring something to light there is um, those guys at some point were told they weren't good enough to be at this level at the start. And so sometimes that fuels motivation, desire, competitiveness to really get after it and really work. And that's always a valuable quality in a person that you have. And then those are very humble beginnings. They don't have this. <laughs> I mean, like it's not what their life looks like. Um, I called one of our recruits is pitching today. Uh, one of the guys that we signed, it's his first start. Just wished him good luck. And uh, they, they were in a small van, you know, going where they were going to play. Um, and so I think some humility that comes along with being at that level, work ethic. I mean, at a place like this, you're going to be able to attract talent, but it's some of those other characteristics that when you talk about building a team and building a program are really positive. And so there's an element of that that I, I really like recruiting here. Look, you're going to have guys who are going to be ready to contribute. And the JUCO guys for a program like LSU, maybe you're not going to be so dependent on them to be starters for you, but they can definitely fill up some time. And they have experience. The problem with freshmen at a program like LSU is that they haven't had that experience. They have no idea what it's like to play in the SEC. And the JUCO guys don't either because they are coming from junior college, but they do have playing experience against other college players, right? So that matters. It just does. That makes a difference. And they have a really great mix, and they have a ton of depth. They do. This LSU baseball team is just absolutely stacked with talent, whether it's freshmen or returning starters or JUCO players. And look, all reports are they had a very good fall. And we, we always forget about baseball in the fall because we're so focused on football. But they have a fall season, essentially. Tons of practices, scrimmages, things of that nature. That's essentially like what spring football is for LSU. That's what the fall season is for the baseball program. And Johnson said they had a great fall and a lot of players improved. Looking out, like you, expectations... Uh, for us are, are real simple. It's maximum effort towards preparation and towards executing what the game requires for the team to be successful. You, the player can't do that if they don't know what to do. And I think um, most coaches, and this is a very general statement across sports, most people know what to do, but the key is the how to do it for the player. And we had a great fall practice session where I think we scrimmaged or played the two fall games with 23 times that we were able to play in that, that fall segment. And so the players got exposed. And so what you do with that is you take where they are, you take where you want them to get to and go, and then the middle part of that's important, the how to do it. So they need to know what to do, and then you have to lay out a plan for how they do that. 
So the fall season is critical of the development of the guys and finding out who can do what for you. Who's going to be able to step up into certain roles for Jay Johnson for this season? You find that out during the fall. You don't find that out during – you may find out a little bit who can handle the spotlight a little bit more, right, when you get into maybe starting conference play and you're like, hey, maybe i got to make a switch here because this guy really isn't rising to the occasion. But you do find out a lot more about this during the fall season. What we didn't need the fall season to tell us is that Dylan Cruz is really good at baseball. Projected to be the number one overall draft pick this summer. He came back to LSU to play for Jay again to help them win a championship. In addition of what he can do with his bat and with his glove, he's being counted on to be more of a leader, right, for this year's team. And he talked about taking on that leadership role for the Tigers. Yeah, um, you know, it's my third year around. I've, I've been a part of some great teams um, learned a lot of things from a lot of older guys I think you know having the egos away and keeping everybody the their own leader in some sort um, is going to be very helpful for this team um, you know just you know everybody's knowing their role and keep moving forward doing their thing and uh, I think the chemistry on this team is very special and I think um, you know if we keep doing the, doing the things little, little things right um, it should be a fun year Boy, he's so good. He is, and, and he, he's their best player. But, man, they got some other guys on that team, and it's just Omaha. Like, I, I think, and you hate to say it this way, but anything less than making it to the College World Series in Omaha, Nebraska, is going to be viewed as a disappointment for the LSU baseball team this year. Just will be. Now, winning a title, that's a different story. But they should at least get back to Omaha. That they should at least do. We got to take a timeout. When we return, we're going to talk about Cincinnati Bengals, Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase, and company. They fall just short of making the Super Bowl. We'll talk about it with John Sheeran of Cincy Jungle. That's next, right here on the game. This is RP3 and company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. RP3 came to the station this morning to do only two things. Kick some ass and drink some beer. Looks like we're almost out of beer. Well, it's kind of early for the latter, isn't it? Maybe. Probably. Maybe just a root beer or some flavored water. Back to more kick-ass sports talk with RP3 and company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Joe Cool, Jamar and company fall just short of making it back to a Super Bowl for the second consecutive season as they fall to the Chiefs by three points in Arrowhead Stadium. To talk about the Bengals and where they go from here, they still have a great window before they have to give Joe Burrow a new contract and Jamar a new contract, but that's coming. That's coming sooner than you think. As our, our guy from Cincy Jungle, John Sheeran, joins us now. Bud, good morning to you, brother. How are you, my friend? Doing good, man. Doing good. Crazy game last night. Very memorable game for a lot of reasons. And another pretty good season for this Bengals team. Pretty good season. Make it all the way to the AFC Championship game. And, you know, give me your just thoughts 
on, on the game, how it played out, and I was surprised how low scoring it was. I did not anticipate it being a defensive battle, but that's exactly what it was as both defenses came to play. Uh, just give me your initial takeaways of what you saw between the Bengals and the Chiefs. Coming into the game, after all the talk and everything, I, th I think I had a feeling that emotions are going to be running very high, which would lead to some great plays made by the great players. But I think I had a feeling th the beginning of the game would be a little rough for both sides because emotions were just running at an all-time high and guys are really trying hard and maybe they're just not really prepared to play their best out of the gate. But as soon as the game kind of settled down, you started to see Mahomes do Mahomes things and you started to see Burrow kind of settle in behind that offensive line. That was one of the big stories, right? You had them play really well against the Buffalo Bills, albeit not a great defensive line that the Bills have, a more talented line that the Chiefs have and Chris Jones and Frank Clark and company. And they made the Bengals backup offensive linemen look like backup offensive linemen. And that's the case with starting three guys who don't normally start, right? The week-to-week -week consistency is always the biggest variable here. And while some of those guys have talent and they have potential to be spot starters, to count on them for a multi-game stretch here against really talented defensive lines is really a tough thing to ask and that's why burrow got sacked four times in the first half it led to some bad decisions and it just led to a not so great offensive performance like to only score 20 points against the kansas city chiefs that's a recipe for losing that's what happened let's talk about that offensive line because credit cincinnati they tried to address it this offseason and that that was their main focus hey our defense is there we got a franchise quarterback we got stud wide receivers we got a stud running back we need to fix the offensive line. And they tried, but it never really worked out, right? More injuries occurred across the offensive line. The offense looked, looked disjointed at times throughout the season where, you know, if you take away some big plays between Burrow and his wide receivers, it, it may have looked worse. How do they fix the O-line after trying to fix it this last year? How do they try to fix it now? They fixed it. They got hurt. Like Lyle Collins went down, Jonah Williams went down, Alex Kappa is arguably their best guy this year. He went down too in the postseason. Towards the end of the year, their offense is very sustainable. It wasn't relying on explosive plays. They were moving the ball, they were running the ball well, and that offense line had really developed solid chemistry. You had a left guard, rookie Cordo Volson, really finding his own, and then Ted Karras rounding out in the center. He's the emotional leader of this group, and he played well all season long. They need depth, obviously. You could always use more offensive line depth. And I think going forward now, you have questions with both tackle spots. Leo Collins is coming off of a torn ACL Ugh. that he suffered in late December. We don't know when his recovery is going to be. We don't know if he's going to be ready for the start of the season. Jonah Williams is entering the last year of his contract, and I feel like he's fallen out of favor for a lot of Bengals fans because he was unfortunately charged with a lot of sacks, but he's still a quality starter. There's just a question of long-term depth there because he's only under contract for more years. So I think tackle will be an interesting position to watch for in the draft just because of the long-term implications. But from the interior spot, they have both Kappa and Volson under contract for the next three years. Karras is here for the next two years, and they're confident in all three of those guys. So that being said, because tackle is the most important uh, of, of the line, and they have questions there. So my producer and I were talking about this earlier. The Bengals have a great window here before they have to – you know, give up a quarter of a billion dollars to Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase, which I guess that's what's probably going to be by the time those contracts come up, the way the NFL salaries are going. Is it, should it be, John, I guess, the priority for this offseason and more and probably next offseason as well to build up depth through the draft 
across the offensive line because you can lock those guys into four to five year deals. Offensive lineman contracts are a, a lot a lot more team friendly, and that way you deal with your depth issues across the offensive line, but not have to break the bank. Pretty much, like again, they they spent last season, you know, solidifying the remaining starting spots that needed to be filled. But now they just need depth all over the roster. Like you're going into an off season where obviously Burrow and that extension is priority number one. They're going to try to get something done with T Higgins, and then they have a bunch of actual free agents who are going to be on the market uh, starting in March, like Hayden Hurst, Von Bell, Jermaine Pratt, Jesse Bates. I would expect at least half of those guys to be gone, but they want to bring back as many guys as possible. So you're looking at a free agency period where you're probably not going to bring in maybe more than just one actual starter on the entire team. It's going to be mostly, you know, veteran depth guys who maybe want to play for a contender to just round out the roster. But the starting lineups on both sides of the ball, like what you see is what you get. You're going to lose guys in free agency and the dra- and the drafts going forward is much like last year, just drafting for long-term depth, filling long-term needs with high round guys who maybe, maybe have to sit for a year or two, but that's, the plan that you have to take when you're going to invest so much of your salary cap space in a couple of elite guys because you have to pay them right you can't go into a future without paying both joe joe burrow and jamar chase and at least trying to do the same for t higgins so that's just how the dynamics switch with this roster building and entering the draft they just have to think about the long-term picture so what's the number one priority then for cincinnati is it roster depth or is it getting that joe burrow extension done and do you think they can get it done this offseason they will definitely try. I, I, it might take up until August just because the variability of them never actually ever offering this kind of contract before, but they know what the market is at the quarterback spot and uh, they, they've done things to increase their cash flow in order to pay whatever Burrow demands up front in terms of guaranteed money. The structure is going to be interesting. I think I, I've looked at Patrick Mahomes' contract as like a good example for what the Bengals could do to avoid giving out you know, over $200 million in guaranteed escrow up front. Like Mahomes has a bunch of roster bonuses baked into that 10-year contract, so they just get paid uh, as they go, right? And it's right. You know, money that he gets as soon as the the, 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 uh, the date hits in the offseason. So that may be an option that they can take, and that might be the structure that they want. But Burrow wants to be here. Obviously, the Bengals want him to be here. They've taken steps in order to make sure that they can pay this contract. So I would bet on it getting done, but it might just take the entire offseason to actually get it done. Now, he's on his rookie deal, so, I mean, he's just going to be entering year four, right? So this is a little early ahead of schedule to get this extension done, but they don't want to even play that game of letting him play out a year before the – right? I mean, they want to go ahead and get this done now so it's done with and locked up and they know how to move forward for the next decade. Right, like – with uh, Jesse Bates, for example, like they tried to get him done as soon as possible, right? And we've seen the safety market kind of take off. The safety market, or any other position besides that matter, compares nothing to the quarterback spot, right? That <laughs> that market just increases and increases as more of these young elite guys are going to get paid. And I think it's going to be interesting to see like if Justin Herbert gets paid first, right? The market right now, the, the top of the market is $50 million per year. Aaron, Aaron Rodgers said that, but he's 50 years old, right? Justin Herbert, Joe <laughs> Burrow, they're in their mid-young 20s. They're, they're, they're next up as, as these elite quarterbacks. And if Herbert gets paid first, he might be at $52 million right here. He could be at a certain guaranteed money standpoint. And then that that will impact negotiations with Burrow and his agents. So I'm assuming they want to get this done as soon as possible just so they can get whatever they deem to be value, right? Because every time one of these quarterbacks get, gets paid, we initially look at it like that's a, a crap ton of money, right? But the next guy always gets more because that's just the way that it works. 
We're talking with John Sheeran of Cincy Jungle. He joins us here on RP3 and Company. You're right. And the wide receiver market after what we saw this last offseason is 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 quickly trying to catch the quarterback position. And you're going to have to give a ton of money to Jamar because obviously he's special and, and the connection that he and Burrow has is special. So disappointing end to the season. I want to ask about the the play that set up the field goal because, look, bad officiating is across the board. They have been calling that. If it was a running back running out of bounds, there's probably not a flag. But if it's Patrick Mahomes or Joe Burrow or Tom Brady or whoever it may be, they're going to call it, right? That's how it is. And I know there's video on social media of one of the starting linebackers. You mentioned him, Pratt, being very vocal about, why did you even touch the quarterback? You know not to touch the quarterback. But a lot of the guys came to his defense you know, and it said they didn't lose the game because of him. What do you make of how it kind of ended up for Cincy there at the end? Yeah, a lot of this game and its legacy is going to come down to calls and officiating. I think there's more to be said about things that happened before that than that specific play in general. I, I look at it like it was third and four, right? And Mahomes scrambled and he got the first down. So he was out of bounds at about the 42-yard line with eight seconds left. And all game, they've said that the, the maximum range for both kickers was about the 32-yard line, about a 50-yard right. field goal. I think it's entirely conceivable that the Chiefs, with first and 10, with eight seconds left, can easily get eight or 10 yards and get out of bounds and just stop the clock with a couple seconds left and kick a, an, another manageable field goal. So I don't think the offside penalty really killed them as much as people are thinking. Obviously, it was a huge play, and it got them in field goal range, right? So they didn't even have to run that play. But where they were on the field, the fact that they had time for one more play, it's it's definitely conceivable that they still get into Buckers' range and something can still happen. The fact that Mahomes made that play at all, like, like he deserves it, right? Like, he was hobbling around on that, on that high ankle sprain all game. It was the first real play that he extended, and he just laid his, his whole body on the line to, to make that play and to put them into position to get that field goal. So credit to him, credit to the Chiefs for being in that position. I think most fans for the Bengals' side are a little upset about, you know, the one or two missed block in the back calls on the punt return, the third and nine, you know, fiasco earlier in the quarter. Like that 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 play, like it's obvious that Joseph Asai is going to think about it for the rest of his life, and a lot of people are going to blame him. The former offensive line coach of the Bengals is saying cut him, which is ridiculous. But it, it's a hustle play, right? You're not you're not thinking at everything at, at one time. You're just trying to think, get him out of bounds, get don't let him get as many yards as possible. And sometimes it's just a little too late. What happened late in the game? Because I know this was a defensive struggle. Last five possessions, and let's say last four, because I'm not going to count the one at the end of the game where they only had, you know, a play. But their last four possessions, they get one touchdown, but that was after the Mahomes gifted them the fumble at midfield and they only had to go 46 yards. The rest of them were punts or, or turnovers. So what did Kansas City – it's more than the offensive line, right? What did What happened late in the game where the Bengals' offense just kind of sputtered? Yeah, so you had two drives in the final 10 minutes, and one of them ended in essentially an arm punt interception from Burrow, and the other ended in a sack where Hakeem Adeniji, the backup right tackle, was one-on-one -on -one against Chris Jones, and they moved Chris Jones to the outside oh, just because yeah. he's, he's able to do that, right? He's probably going to be the defensive player in the year because of plays like that. But it, it was a lot of pressure allowed by the offensive line. You had a handful of pressures on that second drive. Burrow had to scramble for three yards. There was the pressure that led to the intentional grounding, which is another questionable call that fans aren't going to be happy about. But even still, you know, Burrow converted a third and 16 to Hayden Hurst, and then the offensive line just fell apart just one last time. And on the drive, on the drive before that, you had a holding penalty, which 
caused another third and long. You had two deep shots, one off of Jamar Chase's helmet and one that just came up about a yard short, and the safety made a great play on a, a deep pass to T. Higgins, and the defender intercepted. But again, that was basically an arm punt. It got, got the Chiefs down to like the 14-yard line or something like that. So I, 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 that's going to be my biggest takeaway, the fact that they had two chances in a tie ball game in Arrowhead to beat the Chiefs just like they did last year, and they just weren't able to get it done. They, they, put, the, they put the game in the hands of the ref, and unfortunately the refs aren't always perfect, right? So, like, I, I won't be blaming the refs necessarily for this just because they had those chances and the Chiefs just made better plays. John, appreciate your time, your analysis, as always, brother. Keep up the tremendous work that you do with Cincy Jungle. We'll talk to you during the offseason as well, but not to worry. Enjoy the rest of your week, my friend. Thanks. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. RP3 is the epitome of a high roller, constantly making large bets. But by doing that, the minimum bet is a dollar for a win, a dollar for a place, a dollar for a show. So it's essentially a $3 bet. That netted me a cool $6.70. What? Okay, so he's not a risk taker. He's your best bet for sports talk. 19. Hit me. 20. Hit me. 21. Hit me. 22. Go! Now, back to more RP3 and company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Oh, the undefeated LSU women's basketball team takes on Tennessee at the PMAC tonight. Pre-game's going to begin at 5.30, and tip is set for 6, and you can listen to all the action right here on the game. 103.7 Lafayette, 104.1 Lake Charles. want to take a moment to thank our guests for making today's show, well, making it great, starting off the week the right way. Jeff Palermo from Tiger Rag Radio as we talked all things LSU, and John Sheeran. Cincy Jungle reporter talking about the Bengals falling just short of making it to their second straight Super Bowl. We did have a poll question of the day. 166 votes on this bad boy. Does the NFL have an officiating problem? 88% of you say yes. 3% say no. 9% say it doesn't matter because they are the machine. Mr. Green says, I used to get irate about officiating. I realize now it doesn't matter because nothing will get done. If players were to strike, maybe, maybe it would be talked about. But even that is doubtful. Side note, remember when officials went on strike? Yeah, they still suck. (laughs) Thanks to Jamie for his comment. Gerald says, the WWF of football. Oh, nice. Thanks to all who voted. Thanks to all who commented on our poll question of the day. Great way to start off the week. We'll do it all again tomorrow from 6 to 9. We got Bob Marlin scheduled to stop by. Louisiana Raging Cajuns men's basketball coach Jim Cazzolo from the Lake Charles American Press talking all things Cowboys. And Ali Cassell, the editor-in-chief of the Bird Rights, are slated to stop by the show. For the producer, Dawson Iserlo, I'm Raymond Parch III, better known as RP3. We'll do it all again tomorrow. But until then, be safe out there. Be kind to one another. Kevin Foot and Footnotes is up next right here on The Game.